Good morning. He is risen. All right, let's go to the Lord together one more time in prayer before I preach. Father, thank you for this providential moment, Lord, where you have brought so many of our stories together to be in this room, in this moment, at this time. Lord, I don't want to take this lightly. This exact combination of people will never happen again. This is not something that would happen quite the same way on a television screen. Lord, we know that you love to gather people to hear your word. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to pastor a church that loves to gather to hear your word and seeks to live it out. Lord, I pray that you would take this word and that you would fuel our faith. Lord, that you would impress upon us the implications of the fact that that grave is empty. That you would make it more real to our hearts this resurrection day and that you would do it for the glory of your great name and the glory of your dear son who you raised from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who are visiting, we have as a church been walking through a book of the Bible together, passage by passage for, we'll just say quite some time now. And um, we've been going through the book of Acts and uh, where that story, where that book picks up historically is where the gospel story ends off. And so just to back up for a moment and just figure out where we are historically um, before we get into the book of Acts is um, to say that Jesus had already come, right? The eternal son of God already became a man, was born, what we celebrate at Christmas time, that he lived a life on earth that was unmatched by anyone else. He stood head and shoulders above every other human being that ever lived, and especially in his day. He lived in a way that caught everybody's attention because the power of God was upon him. He lived in a way that um, was marked by miracles everywhere he went. The eyes of blind people were opened. The ears of deaf people were unstopped. People with some of the most terrible diseases, including diseases like leprosy, were healed and cleansed. And people who were mourning on occasion, were given back their loved one when Jesus raised them from the dead. These things were happening all the time during Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And all of that was building up to the greatest thing that he ever did, which was go to the cross, which is what we celebrate Good Friday. And when he went to the cross, he bore in that moment, in his body, the sins, all the sins of his people. He bore them in his body on that tree. He stood in their place and he received the just and righteous punishment that sin deserves. Another way to put it is he tasted hell for those who would believe in him. And after they confirmed that he was dead, they put him in a tomb, a grave, kind of like a cave with a humongous rock in front of it, huge stone. And there he was the rest of the day Friday, all day Saturday until Sunday morning when some of his followers, some faithful, devout women that were followers of Jesus went to do kind of a normal burial custom to bring spices and care for and show honor to the body of Jesus. But when they came, 
the stone had been rolled away. The burial cloths were in order. And there was two really shiny men saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? (laughs) He is not here. He is risen. And that's why we love to say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. That was the first Sunday morning. That was the original resurrection day. That is what we are celebrating. And that is where Acts, the book of Acts, picks up. That moment flipped history upside down. That moment was so explosive that that's why we're sitting here right now. And the book of Acts picks up right there and says, what does that message out of an empty tomb look like when it, when it catches fire among people? And that's what we've been looking at. We're halfway through the book of Acts. And what I want to do this morning, I'm not leaving the book of Acts, but I am going to preach. I'm not taking one passage. I'm going to look, I'm going to step back, look at the whole of the book of Acts. And I've been asking myself this question all week is, what does Jesus want us to know about his resurrection from the book of Acts? So I've looked at every single verse that doesn't just say the word resurrection, but alludes to it in any way, shape, or form. Okay, I've looked at all those verses, taken notes on all of them. I tried to just condense it to say, okay, if I had to boil it down and what Jesus wants us to know, kind of categorize it so that we can kind of grasp, you know, in full thrust what God wants to say, what Jesus wants to say about his resurrection from the book of Acts, this is what you're going to get this morning. Okay, so I want to say four things that I think Jesus wants us to know about his resurrection from the book of Acts. Number one, he wants us to know that the resurrection, that his resurrection is something that was promised. Number two, he wants us to know that his resurrection was something that has been proven, okay? Number three, he wants us to know that his resurrection is something that helps us be prepared. And finally, number four, I should quit trying to do my fingers. You guys are like, what is happening? <laughs> right? Four, right? That his resurrection is something that must be proclaimed. Under these four heads is what I want to share with you, what Jesus has to say about his resurrection from the book of Acts. So let's take those in turn. First one, the resurrection, Jesus wants to know. His resurrection is something that was promised. It would be a mistake to think that the resurrection of Jesus was kind of a on-the-spot reaction or a spur-of-the-moment miracle that God did. Oh, they killed my son. Oh, boy, better better raise him from the dead. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just think like, this is kind of happened. Oh, that's interesting. That No, Jesus wants to say every single detail of Holy Week and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ was something that was part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning. Resurrection was promised, okay? And its fulfillment, when it actually happened, was proof of God's faithfulness that he kept his promise that he made a long, long, long time before. This is why in the book of Acts, it makes statements like this in the resurrection of Christ, he fulfilled to us and to our children. If it's fulfilled, that means it must have been promised, right? Or Paul, the apostle Paul talks about being, um, being accused, right, by his enemies. And he's saying, I'm charged because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Right? It's something that was promised. In other words, what I'm, t- what I'm saying to you is this. The resurrection of Jesus 
was something that the prophets were talking about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. And it was an, a prophetic kind of anticipation that had like a back pressure to it. It was building up and building up and building up. And what you see in the resurrection, the empty tomb, that stone rolling away was like a cork blowing off. Okay? This was an explosion that happened that first Easter Sunday because it was something that God promised and now made good on his promise. Listen to this, Acts 2, 31 and 32. It says that speaking of David, one of the most well-known figures from the Old Testament, right? He's speaking forward prophetically and it says this, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that, We are all witnesses. In other words, David foretold it. It was promised. It's not something new, but old. Something foretold. Something that was promised and now has been fulfilled. And and David was anticipating a day when the Holy One, Jesus, would come. And unlike him, like when he died, when Jesus died, he would not see corruption. What does that mean? His body wouldn't decay. Why? Because it wouldn't be in the grave long enough to decay like yours will be, (laughs) or mine. Like he rose before that process could even set in. And this was prophesied long before Jesus came. Or take Acts 17, verse three, where Paul, the apostle, was in the habit of going into synagogues wherever he went in the known world and trying to persuade people from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And he would talk to them about his death and his resurrection and show from the Old Testament scriptures how Jesus was the Christ. And he would say that the resurrection was something that had to happen because it was foretold. And so he would seek to persuade people on that account. And so when you want to walk away with something from this, you go, if God has been so faithful to keep all of his promises and this one in a very pointed way, a poignant way, we should be walking away from a moment like this together today going, oh, for grace to trust him more. I do not want to doubt him for any good thing in my life. I want to trust him. I'd be a fool not to trust the one who keeps promises, such sweeping, massive promises as this. And he has kept his word, and he is trustworthy. But when that cork blew and the grave was opened, not all handled that back pressure very well or the scene of the empty tomb. For some, it was too much. And there's kind of an irony here, right? The very hope that the 12 tribes of Israel had, looking forward in anticipation, Paul, the apostle, for example, as one of these early believers, he embraced it, right, as an Israelite. He embraced that hope that was foretold. And when that hope was finally realized, right, when it actually happened, it came to pass, and by God's grace, his heart seized upon it, like like it did for the other believers, right? They didn't see it. They didn't see the resurrection as something that was promised and fulfilled. So they missed it. But not only did they miss it, they vehemently opposed those who actually saw it, who actually embraced the fulfillment of the promise when it hit them between the eyes. So the first point that Jesus wants to drive home to us is that his resurrection was something that was promised a long time ago. And we are meant to hear the faithfulness of God all over it when he raised his son. The second thing he wants to impress upon us, and all these are going to build to a climax, 
is that the resurrection of Jesus has been proven. The resurrection of Jesus has been proven. Now, imagine the doubts that were going through the disciples' minds after Jesus died. Okay? They put all their eggs in one basket. They were trusting solely in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and the anointed one. They believed wholesale in who he was. And it wasn't just like he died a natural death. It'd be hard enough to think that someone could be raised from that, right? Been to funerals? Have you ever had those moments where you're like, that would be awesome if God just, you know, raised them right now? Um, he could, right? He's done it before. Uh, he's interrupted funeral processions before. But thinking about all that they watched him go through, like it wasn't just any kind of death, right? Thinking about the way that he was beaten and whipped, not with any kind of whip. I'm not going to go into all the details there, but his flesh was so unbelievably torn, you could not recognize him for who he was. And then on top of that, to experience, you know, the torture of a Roman crucifixion, top of all, they watched him undergo all that. And then the spear at the end, just to, you know, make sure everything was complete. Okay, to, to have witnessed that, you know, and then to be in hiding, thinking that could happen to them, what they're going through, what they're processing, the kind of doubts that, that would have been in their mind, the resurrection would have felt like an impossibility on an emotional level. But how did God deal with their doubt? Well, he dealt with their doubt, first and foremost, by doing the act. He raised his son from the dead. Now, this might be like the most obvious thing I can say this morning, but I want to emphasize this because this is everywhere in the book of Acts. When you read, he raised, he was raised, he was raised. It's always God raised his son. God raised his son. God raised his son. God wants us to know that this is what he did. In other words, this act is something that God is most proud of. This, is, this act is something that God is most serious about. To deny the resurrection is to deny the most central act of God in history. A fact that God has bound himself to. He wants us to know he did it. He did it. And to make it clear and to deal with the doubts that are very natural to us as humans, he provided many proofs to many people over many days. And many proofs to many people over many days. For example, take Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. For example, like they think he's a ghost. They're kind of like, what's going on? And he's, he eats in front of them. They're like, okay, I'm not a ghost. Okay, uh, do you want to put your hands in my healed wounds here, right, to help you Come to grips with the reality that it's really me. Yes, you saw me suffer, but here I am. I told you, by the way, <laughs> that I was going to die in the hands of sinners and then rise again on the third day, but we'll set that aside for now. Here I am, right? So he revealed himself with many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Do you realize that? Has that landed on you before? For 40 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he was appearing to all kinds of people. He appeared to his, apostles, his disciples over and over. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. You wonder why this caught wildfire in a place that they would have almost done anything politically to try to squash this thing, and even religiously among the Jews to squash this thing? When 500 plus people see him risen from the dead, it's kind of hard to keep a secret. 
proof. God revealed himself. He showed his son to tons of people, not to everybody he didn't need to, but sufficiently, sufficiently. In Acts 10, I love this, verses 40 and 41, it says, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, they could have been reflecting on, we ate and drank with Jesus before, right? We're like, well, that's sentimental. You know, you had many amazing times with him. They ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What a foretaste of the ultimate fellowship to get to enjoy with the risen Christ. They were already getting a foretaste of what it's going to be like in the kingdom to be able to feast with Christ. But their point was, we ate and drank with him after the resurrection. We experienced him. In other words, God is giving ample proof. God is preparing his eyewitnesses. And this is very important because they were very strict about who was going to be an apostle at the beginning. God made certain that it was people that were experiencing Jesus from beginning to end, right? People that were aware of things and were present even at John's baptisms and then all the way forward through his death, life, death, resurrection. They even wanted to see him go up into the sky, his ascension, right? That's what it took to be an, be an apostle. You had to be there for all of it. They need to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. In other words, can I just put it very simply? They had something to talk about. Like these men had something that these early followers of Christ had something to say to the world. They went from boys to men, from doubting everything to risking everything, from cowering in quarters to persuading rulers. How do we account for that? Proof. (laughs) Very strong proof that God pressed into these people's hearts and That proof was so pervasive, so persuasive, so powerful, so penetrating to their hearts that it was like a fire shut up in their bones that they couldn't help but speak to. We need to hear this afresh on a day like this. We live in a secularizing age, right? In a post-Christian age and everybody does what what is right in their own eyes, right? But this tells us like, There is no historical event of significance that is better attested to than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that the proof's not there. It's that hearts are cold. And there's cost. There's a cost to believing it and there's a cost to not believing it. But people feel it. There's a lot at stake if you concede this point. But whether or not someone concedes it, the victory march goes forward. So he doesn't just, though, tell us about his resurrection in a way that's helped us to see that it was promised or that it's been proven. He wants us to think about his resurrection in a way that's going to help us be prepared. Okay? Now, the Bible teaches, when it talks about the resurrection, and this is true in the Bible at large and in the book of Acts in particular, it doesn't just speak about Jesus' resurrection. The Bible talks about a general resurrection from the dead. Is that a familiar concept? That he talks about a, a, familiar, uh, a general resurrection from the dead. For example, in Acts 24, verse 15, um, talking about the hope that believers have in God, it says, which these men themselves accept, and it says this, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Okay? Most, if not, uh, many, if not most of the Jews in Jesus' day believed in a general resurrection of the dead, of the just and the unjust, believer and unbeliever alike. And someone, you might just ask, okay, what's going to happen to our souls when we die? The Bible's answer to that question is that for the believer, our souls go immediately into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, your body is going to be disposed of, but you're going to be with me, right? My body's going to be in the tomb, but you're going to be with me, right? And for the unbeliever, I think the mirror of that is that the soul is going to go immediately in a conscious state of recognition of guilt and recognition of what is coming. It's going to be the difference between awaiting that final moment where Christ is going to come back and resurrect bodies and look forward to being on God's playground, his, a new heavens and a new earth with Christ and all the redeemed versus being on death row, waiting to be sentenced more finally, more fully when he comes back and you're right, raised and have to stand before him on judgment day, only to be ushered into a more permanent state of death without dying, what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Boy, I'm a hellfire brimstone preacher, I know. But it's what the text says. And did you know that Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody? This is a reality. The, resur- the general resurrection of the just and of the unjust. Our spirits go to a place right away, but then our bodies will follow at the end of the age when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead when he comes to resurrect all people and all have to stand before him. Now, how would you know that that moment's going to happen at the end? How would you know that that resurrection's going to take place? Well, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead in a permanent way, right? There's others that he raised and then they died natural deaths. Like there are some, but he's the first one to raise with a resurrection body in a permanent way. It says in chapter 26, verse 23, he's the first to rise from the dead. Or Revelation 1.5, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. Or to use an illustration from the New Testament, Jesus is the first fruits. Though thinking of a harvest, right? They would plant in increments, right? And that first fruits would come up, right? And be given to the Lord, right? Well, Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest, the guarantee that the rest is going to follow. And so what does this mean for us? It means this, and this was the burden of the apostles, okay? For Peter, when he preached his Pentecost sermon, his burden was this. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, you need to know, you need to be assured of two things. One, Jesus's identity. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that's been promised. And two, your accountability to him. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. So it's just his burden to make that clear to everybody that Jesus is Lord of all, whether he's recognized or not at the time. And you could say the Apostle Paul's burden is in the same, in the same vein, but he puts it a little bit differently. He talks about a day that's fixed, a judge that's appointed, proof that's provided. Acts 17, 31 to 32 says this, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who do you think that's going to be? 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives people full assurance that Jesus Christ is going to be the one who is Lord and judge at the end of the age. Okay, The resurrection says that to all of us. And in other words, you could put it this way. As we're celebrating the resurrection, this day is meant to prepare us for that day. This day, thinking about him, is meant to prepare us to meet him on that day. See, a lot of people don't realize it. But it's, ta- it's worth taking the time to just not just think in really, abs- you know, just, just general terms about the resurrection, but to think all of history, all of humanity is moving in this direction historically to the end of the age. But the reality is the, a lot of the Jews in Jesus' day, they believed in a general resurrection. Many people, because of our Judeo-Christian heritage here, have a general sense of life afterwards and a, maybe a general resurrection, having our bodies back and stuff like that. But the thing is, is a lot of people kind of generally vaguely expect that, but they don't expect to stand before the risen Christ. He's the Lord of history. And at the end of everything, these two strands of humanity are going to stand before him, this massive Christ. And he wants us to know by his resurrection that we can be assured that that's exactly what's going to take place at the end of the age. It's helpful to know that ahead of time, isn't it? I think so, personally. You know, that's helpful to know. I know it's kind of funny, but I mean, really, some of you here live every day of your life like you don't believe that. And my burden this morning is that you would wake up to that reality. Because I don't want anybody here to be surprised either because they didn't hear it or because they didn't want to hear it and think about it and let it shape our lives. So take this to heart that this is what we can expect at the end of the age. But it doesn't leave us there where we're told that it's promised, right? That it's been well proven or that even we should be prepared for what's to come and to stand before the risen Christ someday. But this is a message that must be proclaimed. And this is at the very heart of the book of Acts. This is a proclamation book. This book is about proclamation. This book is about getting the news about Jesus as far and wide and deep as possible so that everyone would know this news, so that everyone would be prepared for that day. So God is seeing to it that his Witnesses are equipped to proclaim the resurrection of the dead. That God kept his promise. God provided proof. And he's equipping his witnesses as evident even at the beginning of the book of Acts where we're told this. That they were meant to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promised spirit, power from on high. And that promised spirit would come after Jesus ascended, right? So Jesus rose from the dead. Then after 40 days of visits with people, telling them about the kingdom, he ascended before the eyes of his closest followers. And he blessed them as going up. And before he left, he said that you would go make disciples, that they commanded them, saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he says in Acts 1.8, you will be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When that cork popped, when that tomb opened, it unleashed 
a message throughout the world, beginning in Jerusalem, and it has spread. And that's why we're here to this day. It's helpful to see where it all began. But to say that these witnesses began as eyewitnesses of this, and they were spirit-filled witnesses. And the same spirit that filled these early apostles and disciples is the same spirit that indwells every born-again Christian today. And that this is the message, the same message they proclaimed is the same message that every faithful church is commissioned to proclaim. And every faithful Christian is to want to take upon their lips and cherish in their hearts. And so these eyewitnesses could not unsee what they saw. They couldn't unhear what they heard. They couldn't unfeel what they felt. They had a very severe case of the I can't help it. They had to get this message out. It was like a fire shut up in their bones that had to break out. And they were ready, we see. They were ready to testify. They were eager to persuade from the heart any heart that would listen. They were ready to face whatever comes, no matter how crazy they looked. No matter what they looked like to others. They're talking about, you know, what happened, you know, to their Messiah and how he raised from the dead. People are like, what are you talking? I mean, they're going into like Rome, you know, like in these very sophisticated centers of Greek culture. And they're just saying, look, here's what happened. <laughs> and they're just telling people. And it seemed very foreign to them, right? But here's the reality. It's foreign to people in every age. And the reason why it's foreign to people is because people have other priorities. People have other loves. People have other ambitions, other gods that they're living for. And so it makes the message of Jesus inconvenient, you know, at least, but offensive at worst because it's seeking to upend and dethrone the other gods on people's hearts. And so they come with a message. For example, in Acts 26, 16, Jesus says this to Paul. Paul's reflecting on him being commissioned by Jesus. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen. So what is it? What are these things that have been seen? What are these things that have happened? What is the message that must be proclaimed. It's where we began. The Son of God came to earth. He took on human flesh. He lived a life that was un, that's unmatchable to this day. There's no one like him. There's a reason why people were like, he's the Messiah. With all that he did and all the things in his life that attested to his unique identity as the Son of God and as the Messiah, as the, the only Savior in the world. The climax of it was his death on a cross. And that death, as I said before, is a death where he was taking sin upon himself. He bore in his body the sins of his people, the sins of all those who would trust in him. And after he died, they put him in a tomb. And that's what we've been talking about, how that tomb was empty upon further inspection. And that this message now must be proclaimed. And the, and the apostles and churches throughout the ages have had this unified message. We may not agree on everything, 
But this core, any true church does agree on this core heart, which is the gospel, the heart of Christianity, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they proclaim this. They told everyone that now that Christ has risen and ascended, he wants it proclaimed far and wide that he's calling everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins and put their trust solely in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the message. And he promises eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and you could say a hope, a sure and steadfast hope of a resurrection at the end. When just as he was raised, you too at the last trumpet will be raised to be with him and never to be apart from him again. To be in his presence in a new heavens and a new earth where we will enjoy his fellowship. Do you see? I mean, this life is so short and so fleeting, but it's that eternal fellowship that we were made for. And some of us here have tasted that sweetly. We've tasted enough of a foretaste to make us a little crazy on this side of heaven. And I just want you to this morning to taste and see how good God has been through his son's death and resurrection. How good he has been to us sinners. I want to ask you this morning, are you taking this reality seriously enough? Is it shaping your life? Maybe you want to go back and read the book of Acts and go, what would it look like for this fire to be caught in my heart? I'll tell you the first things first. You wouldn't, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to tread lightly here because I'm super glad that everybody's here. But if this is maybe be the only time you could hear it, I just want to say, you ever heard that phrase, creaster? Christmas, Easter, that's when you go to church, right? I just want to say, I'm really glad you're here. But if you're a Christian, if you're a genuine Christian, you will gather with God's people. Because you look at the book of Acts, when the church, when the gospel spread, you know what it did? It so radically changed hearts that God's spirit was inside people. And you know what they did? They congregated. They wanted to gather together and worship together. There was no maverick Christians. You couldn't find any of them. The only exception are missionaries. And they're going to plant more churches. <laughs> so I just want to say to you, please, I'm not trying to browbeat anybody, but if you're a genuine Christian, I just want to say, if you don't gather with God's people, you're living in disobedience. And you're worshiping something, but you're not worshiping the risen Christ. Because the risen Christ walks with his people, lives in his people, and wants to do it with power. And so I just want to urge us, take these things seriously. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance is what the Bible says. And God will honor this turning. But I just want to say, if you never want to gather and you want to be indifferent to the cross of Christ, you just need to recognize that this sermon even is a witness against you on the last day. Listen to these points one more time. That Jesus wants us to see from the book of Acts that his resurrection has been promised and that God has made good on that promise. That his resurrection has been proven. You're not going to find a historical fact more attested to than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his resurrection is meant to prepare you and me to meet him on the last day. And that this, this resurrection must be proclaimed. So I proclaimed it this morning. For some of us, it's just a fresh reminder of what God has done in Christ in this world. But for some of us, 
It's an urgent message to take very, very seriously for your souls because we are not just doing a ritual here this morning. We're talking about the crucified and resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Father, you know you know my heart, Lord. I do not want to break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. Lord, I don't want to beat up on anybody that's down. But Lord, I know that your resurrection from the dead is meant to lift us to places that we have never been before in ourselves. And so I plead with you, Lord, take this message and do good for every single person in this room. Lord, this is your message. This is what your resurrection is meant to do in our lives. Lord, I do pray for those who may have felt an admonishment that they haven't got to hear but have needed to hear. I pray, Lord, that you would honor me trying to speak a hard truth that's hard to say, even for me to say. Lord, and that you would use it for great blessing in their lives, in the lives of their children, in their families, and for others who hear them claiming Christ but not living it. For the sake of your name, O oh God, do a resurrection power work in their hearts. For the glory of your name, that your church, the people that profess your name would not drag your name through the mud, but wanted to be lifted up for all to hear. Lord, I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you that, that, that since that tomb is empty, we have hope every single day of our lives. Lord, I thank you for saving my soul with this saving message. Thank you for doing that for countless in here. Oh Lord, would you extend it into more hearts, even today? Lord, I thank you that you have warned us, that you've prepared us, and I thank you for the profound joy it is to think of being able to eat and drink with you in your kingdom to be able to feast with you, to be in your presence. Oh, thank you that you've allowed us to taste and see how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.